to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Chapter 4, verse 14, uh, which was where we began last week, we come to a new section, as we mentioned, in the Epistle to the Hebrews, and we are presently in that main section, because it really is the main central section of the epistle dealing with the supremacy and superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ as the great high priest for his people. We were really introducing ourselves last Wednesday evening to the whole idea of what this concept of Jesus as our great high priest means, thinking particularly of the functions and qualifications of the high priest. The qualifications of the high priest are in chapter 5, verse 1, and they are two. First of all, he had to be chosen from among men because he was their representative. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And since the high priest's function was to deal with God on behalf of men in relation to their sins, he had to be chosen from amongst men because he was their representative. So the high priest had to have this qualification that he came from among men. Secondly, he had to be appointed by God. He could not be self-appointed. He could not be appointed merely by men. He had to be appointed by God because God had to approve of him. Now that, of course, is why there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, because God has only appointed one man. God has only appointed one high priest. And if we are to have a high priest who will deal with God concerning our sin, then it is God who has to approve of him. And that's why the high priest had to be appointed by God as well as to come from men. Now in both cases, Jesus is preeminently qualified to be our high priest. And from verse 5 of chapter 5, the apostle sets about demonstrating this in the reverse order. First he shows us that Christ's appointment was by God the Father. Verse 5 so also Christ, and this is just about where we ended, I think, last Wednesday, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. That is, he did not appoint himself. He did not raise himself to this position. He was appointed by God the Father. And it's a very significant thing. As he quotes from Psalm 102, uh, the, the apostle sees how God proclaimed in prophecy this appointment of the Lord Jesus to be the high priest in Psalm 102. He said, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now, this sense of his being appointed by God the Father comes through in both these areas that the apostle invites us to consider at the beginning of chapter 3, do you remember? He said, Therefore, holy brethren who share in a heavenly call, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. And in both cases, in his apostleship, 
his being sent from the Father's presence into the world, his high priesthood that he was constituted a high priest and mediator and savior by God the Father. Jesus has a supreme consciousness of this, particularly, I think, in John's Gospel, whereas we've noticed in one or two different connections, one of the great phrases, which is almost a technical name for God in John's Gospel on the lips of Jesus, is him that sent me. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. I do not speak my own words, but the words of him that sent me. And this is a constant refrain in John. If you go through John's Gospel, you will find this. He has a sense of being apostled by the Father, as it were. That he is a sent one. And therefore, Jesus is in that sense the supreme example of apostleship. He is sent by the Father. And the way in which he was sent and the way in which he discharged his mission from the Father is the supreme example of all who are sent by the Father to whatever ministry. But he also has this consciousness of being appointed by the Father for this purpose of bringing glory to the Father. And as we know, that phrase, to bring glory to the Father, finds its consummation in the offering up of the Lord Jesus as a perfect sacrifice. John 8:54, for example, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And Jesus, all through his life and ministry, has this consciousness of his appointment by the Father. You get this even in the sense he has of the timing of the Father's sovereign overruling in his life. Where again and again you find in John's Gospel, for example, the hour is not yet come. The hour, mine hour, has not yet come. It's constantly a repetition through John's Gospel until you come to the point where Jesus says on the verge of his offering of himself up as our high priest and our sacrifice, Father, the hour has come. Now this appointment of Christ is, is intimated in uh, Psalm 102, which he quotes in verse 5, and in Psalm 110, which he quotes in verse 6, as he also says in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that 110th psalm is a psalm which the writer of the Hebrews expounds to us in a messianic sense. That is, it is speaking to us supremely of Jesus as the Messiah. And he is the Messiah uh, anointed by God to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Indeed, I think it's Philip Hughes in his commentary, which many of you have so wisely uh, bought. It's Philip Hughes who says that Psalm 110 is the theme text of this part of the epistle. And it is really, if you look into chapter 7, you'll see that this psalm is quoted no less than five times throughout uh, chapter 7 in various places. Good exercise for you later since we don't have time this evening. You'll find the five places where Psalm 110 is quoted in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Now, in this calling of Christ to be the high priest we need, there are three things said about Jesus which qualify him to be the perfect high priest. First of all, his divinity. Uh, Thou art my son, 
in verse 5. And that, of course, is the quotation which the apostle uses earlier on to establish the divinity of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 5, To what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. He is the son of God, and as God's perfect high priest, he not only combines humanity, that is chosen from among men, which I think is what today I have begotten thee, refers to. He was begotten by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary and became a man with perfect manhood. But he combines with that full godhood. And his perfection as the high priest is that he has divinity, humanity, and priesthood. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, that name mentioned in verse 6 uh, from Psalm 110 uh, is a kind of trailer. The epistle to the Hebrews has got the habit of dropping trailers here and there throughout the epistle. I wonder if you've noticed this, when uh, you get a mention made of something which is just left, and then it's picked up and expounded at greater length later on. Now, Melchizedek is just mentioned here, but in chapter 7, you get a complete exposition of what the significance of Melchizedek is. So we'll be coming back to Melchizedek, uh, God willing, next year, when we come to chapter 7. And the significance of this strange figure will appear rather more here. But in the meantime, we need to say this. To the Jew, you see, Jesus' calling to be the perfect high priest would seem strange for a very particular reason. To the Jew, anybody who was called to priesthood had to belong to the line of Aaron and to the tribe of Levi. That was the tribe and that was the line exclusively from which priesthood came. And so you find today there still is a habit indeed in the synagogues. I remember uh, going up to the synagogue of Garnet Hill when I was in the Hebrew class in the university with some of my fellow students, all of us with our father's hats on our heads and looking like gangsters rather than divinity students. But we went up there to be introduced to the uh, service at Passover time. And I remember the um, minister of the synagogue at Garnet Hill, then Dr. Cosgrove, telling me that when they invited people to read from the law in the central raised days area in the synagogue. It's a very interesting thing to see a synagogue if you haven't seen one. Uh, they invite people who have the surname of Kohen, first of all. That's a very interesting thing, you see, because Kohen is the Hebrew name for a priest. And these are people whose family belongs to a priestly line, most probably, or so they would assume. But the significance of this is that in Jesus' family lineage, you trace something quite different. He was not from the line of Aaron. He was not from the tribe of Levi. He was from the line of David. And he was from the tribe of Judah. Now from that tribe, a high priest would never have come. 
And this is why the writer of the epistle, in exalting the superiority of Jesus as the high priest, says, Thou art a priest forever, not a temporary priest of a human sort. Thou art an eternal priest because he was to bring an eternal salvation. Not after the order of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, you see, belonged in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 14, where you will read of him in verse 18. He is introduced to us belonging to two realms. He is the king of Salem, in the story of Abraham, come back to it in chapter 7. He is the king of Salem, that's probably Jerusalem. He is the king of Salem and he is the priest of God Most High. Now Melchizedek therefore provides the perfect figure, the perfect representative figure of the kind of priesthood which Jesus exercised. The priesthood which came from the royal lineage, he was great David's greater son. And also a priesthood which was not merely Jewish, but universal. Not merely from the tribe of Judah, but a universal priesthood. And he is constituted, therefore, the great high priest because he is of the priestly line of Melchizedek. So it's not unimportant, you see, that this strange figure is hauled up here and mentioned to us and then forgotten about until we come to chapter 7. It's of the very essence of Jesus being a high priest. He is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So he qualifies to be the high priest because he is chosen from among men and because he is appointed by God and not self-appointed. And Jesus constantly, it's one of the great significances of this plea Jesus makes, that he is sent by his Father. He is conscious of being appointed by his Father. My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. He is all the time related to this appointment of the Father. And there is something very wonderful and very significant about this. I think it is Adolf Safia, that great and godly Jew who became a Christian and comments upon uh, some of these parts of scripture with such great grace who says that this picture of our Lord Jesus never self-appointed and always conscious of the appointment of God is the picture for every minister of God who dare not dare not minister except he is assured of the same appointment. Now to the function of the high priest as demonstrated in Christ. Do you remember that these functions were to deal with God regarding man's sin and to care for men with the compassion of God? Now it's this latter function he turns to in verse 7 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard for his godly fear. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now that really is a development of the theme which has already been taken up in chapter 4 from verse 14 onwards, which we uh, looked at last week. And uh, in the days of his flesh refers in verse 7, of course, to the days of his humiliation when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And although we have already looked at his sharing and sympathizing with our weaknesses, being tempted in every respect as we are. I think here from verse 7 onwards, the apostle is dealing more explicitly still with the depth of Jesus' anguish into which he entered in bearing our humanity and carrying our sorrows and ultimately being made sin for us. So that here I think it is true to say that in verses 7 to 9 and indeed in verse 10 you get a combination of these two functions of the high priest of being the sin bearer that is of dealing with God concerning man's sin on our behalf and of dealing compassionately with men because he knew what it was to offer up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Now, that is a description, of course, which has immediately drawn people's minds to the place where our Lord supremely in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, which was in Gethsemane. And I'm sure that it is especially Gethsemane that is here in mind. But I think we need to grasp that when we seek to come into the whole realm of what Gethsemane meant for our Lord, we have to recognize, too, that that is only an explicit account of something which is implicit throughout the whole of his life in the days of his flesh. Because there is a sense, you see, in which the whole of his ministry is one of strong crying and tears as he comes to bear our sin and to take our flesh, to experience all the weaknesses of being flesh, to enter into all that it means to be open to the assaults of the evil one in his capacity as the God-man for us. And here there is something infinitely more, I think, than a picture of Gethsemane. But it is in Gethsemane that you supremely see Jesus with, with all the reality of bearing our weaknesses, being tested as we are, and marrying that together with the agony of bearing our sin and all that that involves so this high priest, you see, 
is bearing what it means not only to be truly man and entering into our weakness and as we were discovering last week not standing outside of our weakness so that he is unable truly to sympathize with it but entering into it so that there is no area no area of life no area of weakness or testing or conflict or temptation that I put my foot on but Jesus has not been there before me but he marries all of that together with bearing the weight and burden of the world's sin and something even deeper and more appalling than this. I wonder if you have noticed how the figure of Jesus in Gethsemane is, is but the last, I suppose, of several pictures that you get in the Gospels. You know, it's so important for us at Christmas time, beloved, isn't it, to have our hearts lifted up above mere sentimental dwelling upon Jesus as a little baby, that we should grasp what it is that he has come for. And while we dare not shrink from all that his humiliation to be a babe at Bethlehem means, we dare not divorce that from what his humiliation was all about ultimately. And you get a series of these incidents. You get the incident where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and he is seeking to lead them into a discovery of what true servanthood means. Because I am among you as one that serveth. He is the classic servant of God who has come to fulfill that picture in Isaiah. And then they get a deeper preview of what the cross and his anguish and his sin-bearing, his acting as priest and victim is going to mean when he leads them on into the next incident of the Lord's Supper and its institution. And there as Jesus breaks the bread and they share together when he says, this is my body, this is my blood which is shed for many. There is a preview there of the cross and that of course is why we find ourselves so drawn out in heart at the Lord's table. But you see, when you come into Gethsemane, this is not an experience for the disciples. This is an experience for Jesus. And as he comes into Gethsemane, it is not a preview of the cross for them. It is a foretaste of the cross for him. And that is what calls out from him the strong crying and tears. It is as though before him and into his soul there is projected all that it means for the great high priest who has worn our nature now to become our sin bearer and to be laid upon the altar of sacrifice. But the nature of that sacrifice, you see, is what is projected in a special sense into our Savior's spirit and that is this cup this cup of which he speaks in Gethsemane and that is what produces the strong crying and tears have you noticed when Jesus agonizes over this cup now it is not just the cup of his suffering people have said that spoken about the cup of suffering this is the cup of which the prophets wrote when they spoke of the cup of the wrath of God into which was poured the vials of God's wrath and judgment. 
And that is what Jesus has before him in Gethsemane. And out of his deepest heart there arises this strong crying and tears. Now it's often been pointed out that in the upper room the picture of Jesus is of one who is composed and as it were in control of the whole situation. But the picture of Jesus in Gethsemane is the picture of one who has in some sense a brokenness in his whole bearing. He began to be very sorrowful. My soul is heavy and exceedingly troubled. And you get this increasing sense of the appalling nature of what sin-bearing meant as Jesus begins to see it in this cup. Now it's this that makes him in the days of his flesh offer up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now it has been thought strange that here is Jesus uh, crying to the Father who was able to save him from death and the Apostle goes on to say and he was heard for his godly fear. Now, of course, he was heard. And the sense in which he was heard was that he was saved, not from death, but through death, into resurrection, in this sense that the apostles spoke of when they said that he was delivered from death because it was not possible for death to hold him. Now do you see what has happened? Hitherto, as, as the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews has been saying already in chapter 2, that men were held captive by death. They were through fear of death subject to lifelong bondage. And he came that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is the devil. And the apostles say that it was not possible that death should hold him. Now this is the sense in which God the Father heard him and brought him through death into resurrection. He tasted death for every man, but God the Father heard him and brought him through death into glory. But he was brought to glory not by bypassing death, but by tasting it. Now here is the significant thing. The apostles say it was not possible for death to hold him. Can you think of the illustration that has sometimes helped me of how an electric light bulb, for example, is able to take the current that is passed through it and to hold it. And the current passing through the bulb is held by the light bulb. And it is, as it were, imprisoned and used and taken by the light bulb because it is a certain voltage. It's 250 volts or so, and it comes to the light bulb and the light bulb holds it. 
But you pass 10,000 volts through that bulb. And what will happen? It is not possible that it will hold it. It will smash it. And when our Lord Jesus enters death, and all that death means as the judgment upon sin and as the great tyrant that has held men in bondage, our Lord Jesus enters death and it is not possible that he should be holden by it. He smashes it and breaks its power and delivers them who through fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Now the apostle says, he was heard for his godly fear by him who was able to save him from death. And the really significant thing, as it seems to me, is that he was not saved from suffering, as he goes on to tell us in a moment. And I'm sure this is great practical application, does it not, to us? The point of the epistle to the Hebrews is to encourage those believers who are passing through days of suffering in the midst of his crying to the Father with strong crying and tears. He was heard, but not heard by being allowed to bypass death as it were. But through the very darkness of death, because of his godly fear, he was heard. And thereby he brings many sons to glory. You know, one of his strongest cries, have you ever thought of this? One of his strong cries was, Father, glorify thy son. Now, how did God to whom that strong cry ascended, glorify his son. He glorified him through death. And through what Jesus has done to death. That is, he has destroyed it. Now he was heard for his godly fear, he says at the end of verse 7. And godly fear means here a concern for the honor of God. It's a phrase that's used again in chapter 12 and in verse 28. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and godly fear. Oh, it is translated there. He was heard for his godly fear. But I think even more so, and this is a link into the next section, the fear of God in Scripture is always associated with obedience. They who fear the Lord obey him. If we had time, I would want to take you through a bit of Psalm 103. And really, this is what the fear of God means. Its significance is that the man who fears God is not terrified of God. He has a jealous desire for his honor. And so the man who fears God is the man who obeys God. And throughout all his life and ministry, in the midst of all this strong crying and tears, Jesus was living a life of obedience uh, to the Father. Now... 
that is what he goes on to amplify in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience uh, through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus' life, in other words, is a life that is described here as one of learning obedience through suffering. Now, to learn obedience here does not mean to become more obedient out of disobedience, clearly. What it means is to become experimentally acquainted with what obedience involves. And Jesus, as a man, became experimentally acquainted with all that obedience to his Father involved at every stage of his life and ministry. Now, that is an obedience to which we are called, you see. Jesus' obedience is an obedience which constitutes him a perfect saviour. And it is his obedience which is the ground of our salvation as well as his death. He is obedient unto death. My Saviour's obedience and blood hide all my transgression from view. And his obedience, his perfect obedience on which the Bible lays great stress, his perfect offering was the offering of a life of perfect obedience. And his perfect obedience makes him a perfect saviour for sinners. It makes him a perfect sacrifice for sin because he was without spot and blemish. And it makes him a perfect pattern for saints. Because this is what the appeal is at the end of verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now that is not to say, of course, that our salvation is a reward for our obedience. That would be to fly in the face of the whole doctrine of grace which this epistle is teaching. But what it does mean is that the evidence of saving faith is growing obedience. And obedience is so tied to faith in the Bible that you cannot separate the two. So that the man who describes himself as a believer, who is living in consistent disobedience to the will and word of God, is living something of a travesty that the Bible knows nothing about, because obedience and faith are married together. Now this obedience is what we are called to, and the great temptation of the Hebrews in the midst of their trial was to drift away from this kind of obedience, you see. It was to stop going on in obedience, persevering in obedience. Now here he says, it's clear that this life of obedience is a life of costliness. It is clear that this life of obedience is a life of suffering, and they were experiencing that. And as he calls the saints in chapter 11 to witness, that is what they witnessed too. They knew what it was to suffer in all kinds of different ways because of godly fear, because they had set the Lord before them and wouldn't be deflected from that. 
because they had this great aim of obedience. Abraham believed God and obeyed. Now it's that which Jesus has been a pioneer of too. He has been a pioneer in all sorts of ways, you see. But there is no area, there is no area of our suffering in obedience to the will of God which he has not himself experienced in the ultimate. And that's what this whole passage really, I think, is about. Although he was a son, he learned obedience in the things that he suffered. You see, Jesus' obedience was an increasing thing. He became obedient, obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that is the great description the New Testament gives us of his life. And as our great high priest, that meant that he learned the obedience which everything and brought eventually to draw him to the cross and to bear the whole guilt of the world. The whole of his humiliation, therefore, from Bethlehem to Calvary, was one great act of obedience. Now that, says the writer of the epistle, is what we are called to. He became by this obedience the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, having expounded thus far the doctrine of Christ's priesthood, the writer of the epistle now turns to what he sees to be a danger that needs to be dealt with before he goes further. And this will take us well into chapter 6 and into the next warning passage, which I don't intend that we will deal with this evening. But let me just uh, introduce it to you as we come to a conclusion. About this, that is about the whole doctrine of Christ's high priesthood, and particularly the nature of it. We have much to say which is hard to explain. Now, there are many things that are difficult to understand uh, about this high priesthood of Jesus as he's going to expound it in chapter 7. But he says it is hard to explain and then goes on to give the reason. And you will notice the reason, and this is where this warning note uh, has to be sounded. About this we have much to say which is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, uh, dull of hearing is uh, a use of language which refers not, of course, to physical hearing at all, but to that condition which the prophet Ezekiel discovered amongst God's people Eyes have they, and they see not. Ears they have, and they hear not. They had grown dull 
of hearing what God was saying to them. And there is a twofold condition. Uh, dull of hearing is the first, which is due to a lack of nourishment. Now, you will notice this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of God's word. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their faculties trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. Now what he is saying is that there is both physically and spiritually, the possibility of having the tragedy of arrested growth. And this arrested growth is due to a lack of diet. And that lack of diet is due to a lack of appetite. And that lack of appetite is due to a sluggishness in the area in which we are fed spiritually. Now the means by which we are fed spiritually is through the hearing of the word of God. And that's why we come back to this dullness of hearing. And several times over in this epistle, you can get hints of the fact that the writer is troubled because the word of God is somehow or other not profiting those who are hearing it. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why the word of God should not profit those who hear it. Um, one of the great dangers of this particular area of Hebrews is that um, ministers and teachers should immediately conclude that the reason nobody is profiting from the scripture is that they are all unwilling and sluggish in their hearing and that is a very, very dangerous thing to conclude. But I'll tell you something that is of great significance. And this is what he's talking about here. When under the same ministry of the word, some, almost before your eyes, grow and go on in maturity into Christ and begin to appear more and more stable men and women of God, putting the toys of childhood and the practices and nature of childhood behind them and grow up, you know, grow up into stature and into maturity as men and women of God while some do that and others appear to drift away more and more under the same ministry that's what he's talking about. Then you have to face what can be a very serious issue. And that is 
a sluggishness, an unwillingness with regard to the word of God. And I think that's something that I need to apply to my own heart as we come to the end of this part of our study of the epistle to the Hebrews. And it's something that I'm sure you need to apply to your heart too. The danger of this sluggish unwillingness with regard to the word of God. Not with regard to people or preachers or anything else like that. Because all preachers and teachers have got their own idiosyncrasies and peculiarities and oddities. But blessed be God by the ministry of his Holy Spirit. He is able to lift us above the oddities of teachers and preachers. And enable us to take the word of God and zealously go after it. And feed upon it and say, Lord, give me appetite, give me appetite. Give me a hunger that's increasing day by day and feed me upon your word. It's the biggest thing in life for me because this is how I'll grow. And if instead of that there is a sluggish, stubborn unwillingness, Then, he says, beware of the awful danger of not not just remaining in babyhood. You see, I don't think this is remaining in babyhood. It's going back to babyhood again. Going back to babyhood again. And that's what sliding back produces, you see. People who have all the attributes of spiritual childhood. Now these are wonderful in childhood as they are physically. The attributes of a baby are are beautiful in babyhood. But they are horrifying if that persists for years and years and years. That's a tragedy. And that's the spiritual tragedy he longs that we might be delivered from. Because you see, my dear Christian brothers and sisters, the whole aim of this word is not to make us brilliant scholars in the epistle to the Hebrews. The whole aim of this is to make us men and women of God, mature, strong, growing up, to make us men and women of God. That's God's end. And we need to pray, Lord, Lord, do this. Do this for me. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Rev. Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Rev. Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org, where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.